Hello! Thanks for downloading this podcast. Just a quick note to say that we've changed the name from Fight Back to the next round. We think the new title gives a more future-facing angle to our conversations with marketing and business leaders as they chat to us about the next round for their businesses. Enjoy this episode and make sure to subscribe. We're planning Series 3 now and it should be with you later this year. This is Fight Back, the innovation podcast. Hello and welcome to Fight Back. I'm your host, Robin Charney. Fightback is a podcast about business survival and reinvention inside some of our most iconic UK brands. Today, I'm thrilled to be speaking to Rachel Eyre, head of future brands at Sainsbury's. Sainsbury's basically invented the supermarket back in 1869 and today operates over 2,200 supermarkets, convenience and Argo stores. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you very much for having me. To kick off, why don't you set the scene and talk a little bit about what fight Sainsbury's is in and how your market is being disrupted. The challenge and disruption in the UK grocery industry, I think, is really well documented. You said yourself we're 150 years old and we've had to get through a lot over that 150 years. But the pace of change in the last 5, 10, 15 years has been unprecedented. The people we're competing with is changing. There are far more competitors than there ever were before. They're taking different shapes and sizes. It's no longer about just the big supermarket shop at those out-of-town superstores it's convenience, it's online, it's bike delivery within an hour, it's competing with Uber Eats and Deliveroo. So the context is drastically different for Sainsbury's and indeed the rest of the market. On top of all of that, you've got this really difficult consumer context of low confidence, uncertainty in the political and the economic environment. So it's about as complicated and challenging as it possibly could be. But we have been around for 150 years and we intend to be around for the next 150. And that means finding ways to adapt and to, uh, as you so brilliantly put it, to fight back and make sure we earn the right to be talking on a podcast or whatever amazing technology exists in 150 years time (laughs) um, and not just assume it's a God-given right. But what does a head of future brands do? The branded offer is pretty consistent across the big supermarkets. And we knew that to compete and to really win customers and get them to choose to come to Sainsbury's, we had to find a way of bringing more innovation and excitement from the brands that we work with. And that meant a really new and different way of thinking and working and setting ourselves up. The startups are absolutely critical to offering that innovation and distinctiveness. They're fleet of foot, they're agile, they're ahead of the trends, they are tapped into what our younger but the increasingly growingly powerful millennial, in inverted commas for those listening because I do not like the term millennial, customers want, which is authenticity and heritage and purpose and things that haven't always been at the forefront of consumer decisions but increasingly are now. We need to be able to work with those startups and those entrepreneurs. And as a business the size of Sainsbury's, to put in context, we have 27 million customers visiting us every single week. Being able to work with a one or two or three man band is really interesting, exciting, stimulating and challenging. And we aren't necessarily perfectly set up to do that. So we knew that if we wanted to work with those guys, that we would have to set ourselves up differently. And the only way we could imagine doing that was by creating a dedicated team and putting resource against this because it'd be far too much to ask of one of our brilliant buyers to do all the things they do day in, day out for our customers and all the suppliers they work with as well as hand-holding small brands or finding new ways of working with established FMCG companies. So we decided to create a team and uh, I was the first person to join the team and I've had the fun of taking it from that day one, just over 12 months ago, to where we are now. How many people are in the team? So there's 11 of us now, um, but we rely very, very heavily on 
many, many people across the business. And that's been part of how we've built the model is we have to be small but mighty. We are trying to help take Sainsbury's on a journey and transform perceptions, Mm -hmm. not just of customers, but of suppliers regarding what Sainsbury's is like to work with. So we need to shake off a bit of our Goliath syndrome. Mm -hmm. At the same time, embracing and respecting the things that make us brilliant, the things that are brilliant about being Goliath. Our scale, for example, is one of those. If you're an up-and-coming brand in the UK and you really want traction, Mm -hmm. there are very few places better to do that than with Sainsbury's with the 27 million customers a week. What are some of your favourite new brands that you've been involved in in launching? I mean, I've seen the kombucha and I've seen the crickets. It, it, It really spans... A huge, a huge, um, you know, a huge marketplace. Do you have any favourites? They're all my favourites <laughs> in different children. ways. <laughs> but I think what's brilliant about the total portfolio, there's about 120 brands in there at the moment, about uh, 1,500 products probably. And it's the fact that they range from the teeny, teeny, tiny, like one what? skew. Yeah. Uh, crickets would be a crickets. brilliant example. <laughs> so last November we launched roasted crickets. So from something um, small like that or Jubal, which is um, a, a sort of beer slash cider, a fruit-infused beer that's just two guys doing a brilliant job to the likes of, I would say, uh, Off the Eaten Path, which is a healthy snacking brand, which is owned by PepsiCo and everything in between. So to help those brands be successful and to help them get cut through with our customers and get into baskets, we're doing things like sampling, point-of-sale marketing, feature on groceries online, PR, social media, working with influencers. So we're really giving the brands the best possible chance of succeeding with our customers. And hopefully our customers are noticing and giving us credit for doing that too. Definitely. Do you, just change tack ever so slightly, do you think of yourself as being in innovation? No, actually that really um, took me by surprise when you framed it that way at the start. My background is brand and marketing. Um, I've worked in really, really brandy jobs, really more commercial side of marketing jobs. And I don't really think of myself as an innovator because I haven't worked in innovation. But thinking about it, and I suppose how I ended up with this role, is I have done lots of jobs and had to lead lots of change where it's been about changing the way we work internally and externally. And that was really what was crucial in this role, just thinking about identifying what needed to change and doing that in a way that allowed us to change and allowed us to change at pace, but also worked within the corporate framework. And we can never forget, yes, we're being entrepreneurial, yes, we're driving innovation, but we are part of a very large business and we have to make the most of that. Do you have some, I guess, insights and tips to to share with the audience about how, you know, what the the stresses and advantages are of being inside a large corporate you know, entity. I mean, a behemoth of retail, because I think, you know, there are probably huge advantages, but I'm sure it's also sometimes feels like pushing water uphill with a spoon. I mean, it's got to be hard at times. I think some of the things that really helped and made it easier, which wouldn't always be the case for people listening, is what I'm doing, what the team are doing is absolutely front and centre in our corporate strategy. So the burning platform of the need to change because of the competitive environment meant that Being distinctive, as we would term it, is one of the top five priorities for for the business. And that gave me a platform on which to push and nag and needle and get exposure for the team, what we were doing, and to challenge existing ways of working and rule sets. And that definitely makes a difference. And I can't take credit for that. That I was very lucky that that was what I inherited. I think also... um, don't go into an entrepreneurial 
ish job in a corporate if you don't like working in a corporate I definitely am a corporate person. I don't mind stakeholder management and <laughs> dotted lines, steering groups and dotted lines and the matrix environment. I actually quite enjoy it. it, it, it I find it interesting. People are fascinating, aren't they? Yes. Um, so yeah. for me, uh, I've seen that as a stimulating and normally enjoyable challenge rather than a real frustration. But you have to know yourself and know how you will find that if you want to work in a truly entrepreneurial totally uncorporate environment, then I would suggest go and work in a startup, not Absolutely. in a corporate. Yeah. I think um, one of the things that has helped to get traction and be successful was to focus as much on the internal engagement as the external. Mm-hmm. So for example, when I was hiring the first batch of people to the team, mm-hmm. I was really focused on who is going to influence and have impact internally because if we can't get this away internally if we can't get this bought into internally we can't get changes in ways of working signed up to we can't break some rules there's no point worrying about how it's going to land externally so uh, hiring people with internal skills when the the temptation might have been to go and find people with lots of innovation and entrepreneur experience was there but to start with that internal focus really made a difference and then finally being shameless in quick wins, successes. It's a really small part of lots of people's day jobs. Mm -hmm. And it's, I guess, my job as the head of the team, you know, I don't do any of the brilliant work that the team are doing day in, day out. It's my job to spot where the challenge might be and get out there and unblock it before it becomes a blocker, as well as going out there and shamelessly plugging what the team is doing and what it's delivering for the rest of the business. And my Sneaky tip in that would be also always give credit to the other teams that you rely on to help you because if you don't say thank you to them for going above and beyond to support you, they probably won't help you yeah, the next time. The management is one of the really key you know, skills that you have to have. Is there anything in particular that worries you about what you're doing and, and how you're doing it? Just things that keep you up at night worrying you know, how we're going to get there. One of the things that is on my mind, particularly now because we've been going for just over a year, is I guess the sustainability and in particular what we do when brands start to get to a year, 18 months, two years of exclusivity. To be a future brand and to get all the amazing support from Sainsbury's, we require exclusivity from our core competitors at brand level for a period of time. And it's really important that we aren't only focused on finding new brands and bringing them in and then letting them fall off a cliff at the end of the programme. So we need to work out how we continue to work with and scale the highest potential brands that are delivering the most for our customers and for our commercials um, and not just be focused on newness. But you can't also only be focused on growing the existing ones because that constant um, drumbeat of newness is incredibly important for the credibility of the proposition. And consumers, because we, we always exactly. want something new. Exactly. We're always interested. As long as the word news on it, everyone's usually quite excited. And it, it must be really hard because you're only in year one, so you haven't gone through a, a cycle yeah, which I think is really common in innovation. You know, everyone's kind of making it up as they go along and no one has the definitive answer because it's like, well, I'm only doing this for the first time and we're only a year in. So exactly. I can imagine at the executive level where they're asking you for the answer, it, it must be quite hard to kind of look confident and say you have what you think might be the answer, but also instilling that we're testing and learning as we go. So I might change my answer in yeah. six weeks' time. And also having the confidence to not answer the question. So yes. if I'm asked, what do you think, okay, that, that's the numbers this year, where do you think it'll be in three or five years? It's much better, in my opinion, to say, mm. at the moment, I've got no idea because we're still learning mm. than to make up an answer and then 
be held to account on making or not making it in five years, or even worse, given the pace of change in retail, somebody else be held to account for an answer that I've given without due consideration. What are you getting back from the startups? What are they giving you? We definitely learn from them. You know, you learn from them about trends and insight and what consumers are saying, what's happening in different markets. If they're good, they are obsessive about the uh, area in which they're operating and the area they're trying to disrupt. So there is absolutely heaps we can learn from them. Also, doing marketing for a Sainsbury's or a Barclays is very different to doing marketing for a startup. I brought one person into the team who joined us from a, a challenger brand in Popcorn. And she was brand and marketing. Mm. You know, she did everything. The strategy, the uh, reactive uh, social media, the assets, the all the technological side, which is way beyond my experience and skill set. They know different things. They work in different ways. And there's something about the way they hustle. That's a kind of word we bandy around a lot in mm. the Future Brands team. We have to hustle day in, day out internally to make sure we can do things differently for Sainsbury's. And that tenacity and passion and purpose in many of the startups and the way they hustle is really inspiring. Going back to the startups a little bit, do you have to compete to get their attention? What do you think is your secret sauce? We've had lots of positive coverage and particularly in the startup, food and drink startup world, they're all, very, world. they're all very yeah. close of and they course. tell each other everything and that's brilliant for positive advocacy but also means if you get something wrong, they're, they're going to talk and that keeps us honest and means that we really think hard about what we do and don't do and how we run the program. So uh, I would say the inbound has been really high from the start and continues to, to grow. So lots is coming to us. That's great. Do we have to compete sometimes? But the fact that we have the program, the fact that we are investing in supporting the brands, the fact that the pe- people these guys meet with are helpful and responsive really makes a difference. So yes, sometimes we have to compete, but I'd back our chances in that fight. Yeah, It's quite lonely, I think, doing what you do, and especially if you're doing it for the first time in, the, in year one. So I'm really interested to hear who you lean on and, and what you get from that. We've actually been really light touch in the extent to which we've lent on external partners. You know, we have so much experience and knowledge and perspective internally. The people we lent on in the early days and we continue to go to for questions or feedback or to I guess, sense check ourselves, are those who have worked in different guises in the industry. They've either worked for really big FMCGs and are now advisors to lots of small brands, or they're people who have grown brands successfully themselves over recent years who can look back and say, this is what would have made a massive difference to me. And this is what I would have, if Sainsbury's had done X, I would have done Y with or for Sainsbury's. So really, it's been individuals and rather than a structured brief to a particular innovation consultancy or agency. And uh, I think that's paid off. How did you end up in this role? And what has been, I guess, the most satisfying and exciting bits of the role for you so far? Because I know you're just a year in. I've never been, and I wish I was, one of those people with a very, very clear and structured career plan. My background, as I said, is lots of different types of marketing roles. I moved from financial services to retail four years ago. When I moved to Sainsbury's, I was really clear that I didn't think I was necessarily a marketeer. Not that I don't love marketing, I do, and I expect I will go back at some point, but I don't think it's the only thing I will do. And I wanted to join Sainsbury's if Sainsbury's were the kind of company that would be open to moving people around, which fortunately for me was exactly what Sainsbury's were looking for, somebody who could come in and work in 
different leadership positions in different parts of the business from marketing to supply chain to commercial and so on. It could be easy to come into a marketing role or any role and focus, and you probably would do to begin with, focus on just your area. But I was genuinely interested in things like how do we sort out our turkeys for Christmas? So I contacted our turkey buyer and I went out on a trip to a turkey farm ahead of Christmas and saw the lovely turkeys in their happy days. In their happy moments before Christmas. around. I'm not sure if you're visiting turkeys at Christmas specifically. I think that might be a sad time to visit the turkeys. It wasn't relevant to my job directly, but it gave me an understanding of parts of the business that I thought made me better in my Well, you're curious. Exactly. And and a bit nosy. And I think that makes for an amazing innovation person, doesn't it? Curious is just a nice way of saying nosy, isn't it? I am. I'm 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 Canadian. So we we call them as we see them. So um, that was kind of on my mind anyway mm. and then we started talking about this the need for change and distinctiveness and the the idea was actually the brainchild of James Bailey who has just left the business but was our grocery director and he had these great ideas and a great vision for it and I enjoyed talking to him about it and I asked probably lots of quite annoying questions because I'm curious and interfering and we built a rapport about what the opportunity was there. So then when he decided and it was signed off that we would create a team, I guess it was a fairly natural move for me to move into that. I wanted more commercial experience. They thought they needed somebody who had some marketing experience because this role sits in commercial, mm-hmm. not in marketing. But obviously half of what we do is in its broadest sense, marketing yes. it's selling. Yes. And so somebody with that marketing experience was a good fit. So it gave them, uh, the commercial guys, somebody with experience in an area that isn't necessarily their day job, as well as giving me the opportunity to immerse myself, not just in the commercial nuts and bolts of my own job, but the broader trading environment, how we buy, how we choose what to sell, how we price it, how we choose our suppliers, you know, really what's driving the the, yeah. bol- the bolts of the business. Do you have any practical advice for those starting out in roles like you? I won't call it innovation. I'll call it strategy. I'll call it brand building. Whatever you want to call it, three things you've learned in the first year, which you would say, if I were doing this again, I would do that. If you're coming into a role which doesn't exist, which is what I had, right? This Mm -hmm. wasn't come into a role and put your stamp on it or come into a role and transform it. This was create it. Work out how the hell we're going to do this thing that we've said we want to do that we haven't done before. We didn't even know at that point what a future brand would be. What would be the criteria to be part of this illustrious club? And I said to the team, let's just do some stuff. Let's try some active selling. Let's try putting some marketing into stores. Try some sampling. Let's try this brand and see what happens. And we'll learn from doing that. But you learn a lot more from it, I think, than just sitting in a room and designing it from an ivory tower for for a long time. So dive in would definitely be a big learning. Uh, Another thing that I hadn't, again, I hadn't anticipated and has, and I think will continue to pay off, is I've been paranoid about performance, about us knowing the effectiveness of what we're doing, us really understanding the commercial impact, the waste levels and any product that we're bringing in. Nobody was asking for that. Nobody was challenging. People weren't looking and waiting for us to slip up and fall. But we're you know, a very commercial business in a very competitive and challenging environment. So at any point, somebody could turn around and ask for those numbers, ask for, and, and obviously have, ask for proof that it's worthwhile what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And it was really important that we were on the front foot with that and started to tell that story ourselves, including setting targets. 
And that showed people that we were taking it seriously. Obviously, we need to know our numbers and what we're selling and what, yeah. what money we're making. But the effectiveness of any individual activity that we would run, the performance of a particular brand, not just the portfolio, those kinds of things, they're really important for protecting you from any future questions from your stakeholders, but also they're really important for refining the proposition. Yeah. We can't do absolutely everything. We are a small team. Yeah. So we have to really make the right choices about where we focus and where we spend our time, whether that's working with the right brands or focusing on the right channels for activation. For the third point, can you tell us maybe something a little personal about what you've learned in the last year? I've really learned the importance of being kind to yourself. And that's not just true of this job. I'm sure that's true of many jobs and life in general. I I remember as a child when you're being brought up and your parents tell you you should treat other people as you'd like to be treated yourself. I kind of want to flip that now and treat myself. And I would advise everyone to treat themselves as kindly as they treat the people around them. I think it can be really easy to let yourself talk, be so much harsher, less supportive, less kind, more challenging than you'd be to your colleague, someone who works for you, your best friend, your sister, your children, your parents. You should be nice to yourself because you spend a lot of time in your own head and it can be a very, certainly mine can be a very noisy place. And I think that's been particularly true in this job because it was such a blank piece of paper and it would be very easy to question every single decision and be paranoid about whether we were doing the right things. So I tried to be nicer to myself than I might have been in the past and I think it's paid off. You've taken your advice? Uh, Yeah, sometimes. For the most part? (laughs) For the most part. At the start of our chat, you talked about how no one, you know, 15, 10, 15 years ago could have predicted the Aldis and the Littles and the Deliveroos and the Ubers of this world. Where do you see the next disruption coming? I think... Any business which is data rich stands a really good chance of disrupting anybody else. I'm not saying anything that people haven't heard before, but there are so many businesses who have been able to use technology and data to give customers and consumers what they want better and quicker and more reliably than ever before. And for the most part, have earned trust and dare we say, love from as brands, from, from the, their customers and consumers, that they probably stand a decent chance of moving into different industries. So I don't know who that would be or how or when. I don't think we're facing a 12, a 12 months or five years where people never go to shops. I just, mm. don't, I just don't think that will happen. Um, but the disruption could come from anybody who has the power of data and insight. How healthy do you think the entrepreneurial startup spaces specifically in food and drink which I mean you know I know for myself you know the amount of brands that I've got in my cupboard who I didn't even know existed you know not even a year ago like six months ago. I think it is phenomenally healthy if healthy means uh, there's lots coming through and it's very competitive that doesn't mean that everybody will win of course Mm. of course it doesn't Mm. but that's the sign of a healthy market right there are so many great brands out there so much product innovation and disruption in different ways it can be flavors ingredients formats. You you can innovate and disrupt um, an industry in in many ways. What I would love to see more of in the food and drink startup world is more of the innovation and more of the entrepreneurs coming from different backgrounds. Mm. I'd love to see more from different parts of the country, from different age groups, from different ethnicities, different socioeconomic groups, 
because I think that will bring the best of innovation to the UK consumers because I said it before, 27 million customers up the length and breadth of our country. Mm -hmm. There is no such thing as a typical Sainsbury's customer. And we should be thinking about how we're innovating and refining our offer and proposition for every single one of those 27 million customers. Final question for you. Can you bust an innovation myth for us? I think there could be an assumption that to successfully innovate in a big business, you have to distance yourself from and reject as much of the big business as possible. And our experience would tell us that choosing which bits to leverage and embrace and make the most of and which bits to to challenge and tackle and to do that in an open way is really what you need to do. It's the best of both worlds. Rachel, thank you very, very much for being here. I think that was a really interesting and fascinating discussion. I learned a lot. I'm excited to go shopping. I want to go see. <laughs> I, I want to go see what's in my local Sainsbury's. And as we said before we, we started recording, you know, I, I've been I've been scouring the uh, the the new future aisle in my local Sainsbury's, and I really want to see what happens in the next eighteen months and what yeah, you're going to do. Sounds like you're just batting it out of the park. Well, we'll see. Thank you for having me. Thanks. You've been listening to Fight Back with me, Robin Charney. This is the final episode of this series of Fight Back. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the conversations as much as I've enjoyed having them. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please spread the word, like, and subscribe. It helps us to be discovered and grow. Tell your friends, colleagues, and feel free to contact me at rcharney on Twitter or on LinkedIn. Fight Back is brought to you by AAR. We're a London-based management consultancy helping businesses maximize their partner relationships across marketing and innovation. For more information, visit us at aargroup.co.uk. And this podcast wouldn't be possible without the support of the great people at Something Else. Thanks, guys. See you next time.